Welcome back to The Daily Drum on WHUR, Sirius XM, Channel 141, 96.3 HD2 and 98.3 FM. This is the Insight Segment. I'm Harold Fisher. Crime is the number one concern for Maryland residents, according to several surveys taken this year. The latest, the Goucher poll taken back in May. Well, tonight we're talking about crime punishment, and what can be done about the surge of violence in Prince George's County. County State's Attorney Aisha Braveboy joins us to answer my questions and yours. Lines are open at 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. You can X me at hfisherwhur or find me on Instagram at Harold T. Fisher. Madam County State's Attorney, thank you so much for joining the conversation. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Sure. Um, I want to talk to you about what's happening uh, right now. As you may be aware, there is a forum, and a virtual forum being held. It's being led by the Prince George's County School Superintendent, Millard House II, and he's talking about safety and and violence in the school system. And I want to get to that. But the first thing I do want to ask you about is something that made the headlines last week. You spoke at a press conference regarding a, a resolution that at the time was preventing uh, Council Member Crystal Oriada from voting when she goes on maternity leave. I I would say, anecdotally speaking, that was kind of an un, unusual position uh, for you. You you don't often, or at least you're not often seen speaking out on issues regarding what's happening with the legislative branch. Why was it important for you to speak out on that resolution? Well, you know, it really transcends branches of government when you're talking about um, basic human dignity. We have a a woman who has been representing her district extremely well, who's a valued member on the council, a leader on the council, uh, who chose to have a child, which I think all of us, um, are grateful for, because it is our children who will be our future. So she chose to have a child. She said uh, openly that she had a high-risk pregnancy, that she was taken from the county administration building to the hospital on more than one occasion, and that her, the birth uh, of her child will likely uh, be high-risk. And so she is going to need time to recover. She's going to need time to bond with her child. And uh, but but she also can serve the residents of her district. She also can be their voice at the same time. And I think we have to go beyond our politics. Um, and sometimes, even though maybe some some might say, "Well, this wasn't you know an issue that the, the state attorney has anything to do with." Well, as an elected leader in this county, as a woman. I can use my voice to advocate for another woman. I'm going to do that every day and twice on Sunday. It is so important uh, that we honor those uh, who have taken uh, the steps to create life, um, and they can do it in a safe way. And, you know, that resolution wasn't just about someone who was pregnant. If you think about it, it's about individuals 
who may have health issues themselves, other types of health concerns, or those who are caregivers who are caring for sick parents or children, uh, people who they are responsible for, can they care for those individuals and still do their job? Well, COVID told us that the answer is yes. And so when you uh, can make an accommodation, make an accommodation for someone uh, who has sacrificed to represent uh, over 120,000 people in Prince George's County. You, you can make that accommodation so that those residents have a voice, voice, excuse me, you should do it. So that's really what it was all about, and I'm happy I did, and I'll do it again if called upon. But I think the council made the right decision today, and I'm grateful that they, that they were able to come to a, a good resolution on this matter. Thank you for, for sharing your thoughts about that. I, I want to go on now to what I really kind of started the program with. Um, again, the forum is underway right now about safety and security in the Prince George's County Public Schools. The superintendent, uh, Millard House II, he started the conversation today talking about the murder of Jada Madrano Moore, who, as you know, she was uh, gunned down outside of Duval High School two weeks ago yesterday. He also mentioned the gun arrest at uh, Fairmont Heights High School and just overall talking about some of the the safety issues and security issues. From your perspective, when you when you think about just what has happened since schools started really less than a month ago, what, what, what are your thoughts? You know, I, I, like everyone else in Prince George's County, students, our teachers, our bus drivers, every single person who works in that schoolhouse, uh, schools should be places of learning, growth, and maturity, and not places where individuals are in fear of their lives. Uh, so I am uh, grateful that our new superintendent has moved forward uh, with installing metal detectors. In fact, when I was in high school many, many moons ago, we did have metal detectors in the high schools. I'm happy that he's moved forward with the policy of uh, the clear backpacks. Um, but there are still safety concerns because uh, we haven't yet rolled out um, metal detectors in all of the high schools, but there's still fear um, before the, a person gets to the high school or even when they're walking home, as in the case of Jada Madrana-Moore, that they could encounter uh, someone with a gun. So we are very concerned about guns in the hands of young people. Let me be clear. We have sent a very strong message. Those who have brought guns to school um, have been charged as adults and face adult consequences. We are very concerned about the health and safety and well-being of our children. And we are not going to allow them to hurt themselves or to hurt others on our watch. Uh, so we have um, charged uh, the students involved in the Fairmont Heights case. Um, charged in circuit court and will be facing very severe sentence, uh, excuse me, uh, very severe consequences as we have done uh, previously 
Um, a few months ago, we had a student bring a gun uh, to Largo High School, and uh, we that we also charged that individual as an adult. So we are serious. We're sending a very strong message through our prosecutions, and we will continue to do so. But there is an overall culture. There's a culture that says you must have a gun, you must have a weapon, you must threaten others. Uh, you must engage in um, this antisocial behavior uh, in order to be cool, in order to be accepted. You know, that is going to get them nowhere. It's going to get them uh, locked up or killed. Those are the, their two options. Because here, we are not soft on our young people. Accountability runs through juvenile uh, court and our juvenile system through our adult system. So everybody has to be held accountable for their actions, and we have uh, shown and demonstrated that we are not afraid to do that. 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. We're talking to Prince George's County State's Attorney Aisha Braveboy about uh, a myriad of issues and obviously law and order in the county. If you have a comment or question, lines are open at 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. To your point about charging these young people as adults, uh, many of them, the the student at Fairmont Heights High School is 17. The, the student who is charged in the murder of uh, Jada Madrano Moore uh, is 17. I believe the student from Largo is 17 years old. And... Obviously, you make no bones about charging them as adults, but are you concerned that those adult charges are not going to stick? And and what are the circumstances under which they perhaps would not stick? Well, let me just say this. By law, these individuals are being charged as adults. They, in the case of... Um, the individual who is charged with the murder of Jada Madrano Moore, uh, because uh, the individual is 17 years old, uh, they uh, and they are charged with a crime that carries a life sentence. Uh, that individual does not have a right to a waiver hearing. Now. For the individuals who are charged with the gun offenses, uh, by law, they have a right uh, to have a waiver hearing, at which time their defense counsel will make arguments. The Department of Juvenile Services will pro- provide a report um, to the court. Uh, my office will make arguments on wh- whether or not we believe the individual needs to remain in the adult system or be waived. So everyone makes their argument, and then a judge makes a decision. I cannot control the judge's decision. We can only make our best arguments uh, based on the information we have on what our position is going into the waiver hearing. So with that said, in the Madrano-Moore case, mm-hmm. the you said that that, that suspect 
is not entitled to or will not be receiving a waiver hearing. So does based on what he's charged, based on what he's charged with. So uh, the law is, you know, very interesting. There's a lot of nuances in the law. But if you are over the age of 16 and you are charged with a crime that carries a life sentence, like first degree murder, which he is currently charged with, then he does not have a right to a waiver hearing. You're one of the assistant state's attorneys who's handling uh, the prosecution of that case said some eye-popping things last week uh, after that first hearing where, you know, some of the initial reports was that Madrano Moore was was hit by an errant uh, gun gunfire, but according to your assistant state's attorney during that press conference, he said that she was pistol whipped and then uh, shot uh, in the head. And I'm and I guess I'm just that that even for an old reporter hand like me, I was I was just shocked at the level of violence that is being alleged in something like in something like this um what from your from your perspective what is happening you know i wish i knew i really wish i knew um it is just devastating when you hear the facts um but from the information that we have those are the facts um, and so the question is, what would lead anyone, especially someone so young, uh, to engage in that type of viciousness against another human being? Uh, I, I don't have the answer to that. But what I can tell you is that we need to talk to our children. Our uh, parents really need to be much more engaged in in children's lives. Let me tell you, a lot of times we hear from parents, well, I didn't know my child had a gun. Well, I don't know these people my children are hanging out with. Well, you need to know. <laughs> and oh, by the way, parents, it's likely that you have bought their phone. You have a right to know how they're using their phone, who they're talking to, what sites they're visiting, what they're doing on social media. There's software out there that parents can install to ensure that they know what's going on with their kids. Because when the kid comes to my office, having committed an offense like this, I can't necessarily care about all of the, all of the things that the parents didn't know. Let me tell you what just happened, what your child just did. I don't know how your child got here. I'm going to need you to figure out how your child got here. But what I'm going to tell you is that your child can be held accountable and responsible. Um, so we do need to have more conversations with our children. I have to tell you that. My, um, I am working on a great project with our county executive, Ms. Angela Alterbrooks. Uh, we talked about the fact that we need to hear from the children. And so we are going to have a series of conversations at high school, high school, excuse me, throughout our county, where the children are going to tell us why they're behaving this way. The children are going to tell us where they're getting these guns and why it's so important for them to engage in drill rap and all of these other kind of, you know, social media beefs that are leading to people dying on our streets. 
we need to hear from our children because they are the ones who are committing these acts against each other. Yeah. And so we really got to get into their minds. And so we need to hear from them. I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Jeff calling from Laurel. Ray calling from Maryland, 202-319-7810, 219-7810. We're talking to Prince George's County State's Attorney, Aisha Braveboy. Coming up on WHUR, the original Quiet Storm. I'll be back on The Daily Drum on Sirius XM in just a bit. Welcome back to The Daily Drum on Sirius XM Channel 141. I'm Harold Fisher. We're talking to Prince George's County State's Attorney Aisha Braveboy about law and order issues. Lines are open at 202-319-7810. 202-319-7810. If the lines are busy, please just hang in there. I promise that we will be clearing the lines with these phone calls and getting more in. Let me go to Ray calling from Maryland. Ray, thanks for calling. What's on your mind? Hey, so I had a young lady, a friend of mine, get abused by her husband. Mm. I walked her through the whole process of her going down to Upper Marlboro and filing for a protective state order. That process is crazy for a woman trying to get protected mm. from a man. Second, he violated the process again, and we went back down to the court building to get it. And they said... They don't have to give him, they don't have to arrest him. They just have to give him a summons to appear. Why is that process so hard for a woman to get protected from, from, from her abuser? It's just like that lady that got burnt up at, that wreck, at the, the, uh, the store that they kept dropping the ball and she kept saying, hey, she needed help, and ain't nobody do nothing until, they, until she got burnt up. So what's going on? Uh, go right ahead, yeah. Ms. Brayboy. I was going to say, that's a, a very good question, and it, it, it frustrates me, too. Now, the peace order or protective order process is a civil process. So my office does not handle uh, that process at all. We're not involved in the protective order process. Now, if someone violates uh, their protective order, which is a court order, uh, then we can prosecute the individual for the violation of the court order. Um, so I do believe and I, I agree that the process can be intimidating. It can be in some ways cumbersome, um, but it is the process that's set out in state law. Now, the individual who's been abused can seek a protective order. They can also file criminal assault charges. Oftentimes when individuals who have been abused go to the court or go to the commissioner, they're asking for a protective order. Sometimes it's because they don't want the person to get arrested or to go to jail. No, and all that, that wasn't stuff. the case, though. But, 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 hold on for a second, Ray. Listen, go, go right ahead, Ms. Brayboy. Yeah, but, if they, but they also can file at the same time criminal charges. Those criminal charges are then reviewed by my office to determine if we have enough evidence uh, to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. So oftentimes, individuals will go seeking a peace order or protective order who have been abused but don't seek the criminal charges associated with She's it. She's in that process, so really which I took two, 
Y'all taking three weeks for an appointment. So hold on, Ray, Ray, uh, real quick, because Miss Brave Boy did say that is not handled through her office. And, and so I think that your passion is directed at the wrong person. And she's uh, attempting to to share some information. So uh, before I, I move on, uh, Miss Brave Boy, please. Uh, but I'm happy if you can get this gentleman's information. My office will definitely follow up with him, and we we'd be happy to talk uh, to the victim in that case. We'd be happy to talk to her about all of her options. So if we can get the, this young man's information. Um, we're happy to reach out to him and then reach out to her. And, Ray, let me just say before uh, my producer picks up and gets your information and then she can pass it on to Miss Brave Boy's um, staff that I, I do commend you for uh, speaking up and and speaking out and and attempting to to help and protect your friend. We need more men to do that when it comes to issues of domestic violence. And so uh, please do not stop uh, trying to, to help your friend. But I would also say uh, in these kinds of situations for her and for you to make sure that you are very careful because these situations can be, as I'm sure you already know, very, very dicey. But at, at that point, I'm going to... I'm gonna, uh, Stop speaking about this. I'm going to have the producer please pick up his call and get his information, and we will make sure that it is passed on uh, to staff. So, again, Ray, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, let me go to... Oops, let me see. Let me go to Jeff. Jeff calling from Laurel. Thanks for calling, Jeff. What's on your mind? Thank you for having me, and first of all, much success for your show. Thank I listen you. all the time, Mr. Fisher. And uh, Ms. Brave Boy, I, I, um, I met you at the uh, Martin Mitchell uh, networking event, and uh, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming out and uh, showing support because, um, you know, nobody's going to help us but us, and I, um, I, I really appreciated that. Now, on the topic, um, I'm a graduate from Duval High School, and, um, you know, it, it saddens me that this happened at, at my alumni, and, um, but, you know, it's, it, things really haven't changed because of the demographic. Um, you know, I, I've, you know, back in the days, I, I had a gun pulled out on me, um, you know, at one of the dances, and uh, thank, thank God that... Uh, the gentleman didn't, you know, didn't fire. Um, but the, uh, the 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 situation you said that you didn't have an answer to what's going on. Um, but I want to I want to just throw out an answer, and uh, one word is uh, purge. And right now it seems like children are purging. People are purging, and they've talked about it. But right now, because of the pandemic, there's been a, there's been an open excuse to wearing masks, and I'm not just talking about these surgical masks that you know one would feel comfortable uh, being approached by if someone was wearing a surgical mask on their face. But if one is approached wearing a ski mask on their face, that's a problem, and. Uh, 
and there's there needs to be some type of uh, law pertaining to having uh, these 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 uh, youngsters not wearing masks, ski masks on their face, because ski masks doesn't do anything, but but poses a threat, and it, it will cause a person to react to be proactive and protecting themselves because there could be a fear in their heart when someone approaches them, especially a young person uh, approaches them with a ski mask on their face. Uh, now, let, Jeff, let me see if the um, state's attorney can can at least attempt to, to address that. Go, go right ahead, Miss Brave Boy. Well, you know, I, I think that some issues would have to be researched um, so I think that this is an issue for really the state legislature to consider to take up, uh, because there are probably some constitutional rights and some other civil liberty issues that, uh, may attach to that, that level of proposal. But I do believe that he is right in that people are masking themselves in order to not be identified. Um, and as a result, um, sometimes it's difficult for our police uh, to make a positive ID on a suspect. And so individuals are utilizing masks, you know, those surgical face masks, as well as the ski mask, uh, to hide who they are so that in some cases they could, can commit crimes. And so I do believe that's something that, that should be explored, but I would have to say it's a little beyond my scope, and I think a lot more uh, research would have to be done to determine whether or not that's feasible. Jeff, thank you so much for your phone call. Uh, 202-319-7810, 202-319-7810. I, I want to ask you about something that you talked about a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think this might have been even uh, pre-pandemic uh, during the, in the, in the, I think in the very, very beginning of your, I think it was your first term. You, you were talking about a more holistic way of approaching students who, when in school, committed minor offenses. I think you were talking about second chances and the like. Um, have your thoughts about that evolved any or changed, or has your approach to that uh, evolved at all, considering the kinds of things that we've seen lately regarding juvenile crime? Well, well, I think there are two um, types of kids. One, one who commits what we know are youthful crimes and ones that commit uh, more complex, serious adult offenses. So for the misdemeanor offenses, I can tell you those who have gone through our diversion programs uh, where, they, where, where they have receive counseling and support, they have not reoffended. So I think that those programs are effective and they can work and they do work. Um, so I haven't really changed my position on that, except I have evolved to include the parents. So I can tell you that um, my office has partnered with the sheriff's office and the Community Public Awareness Council uh, to create a family Justice Academy. And this is for kids who have committed relatively minor offenses 
or who are habitually truant, they can be referred to our academy, and the academy just doesn't focus on the children. Uh, what I think is important is to have parent accountability and parent involvement. So the parents are also involved in the academy. So um, that has been extremely successful. We received a grant uh, for, from Governor Moore uh, to really expand uh, our operations, and we are so grateful to our governor. Um, but, yes, we can do both things. I think for childlike crimes, we, we focus on healing the child and the family. Um, but for those who are committing the more serious offenses, we will hold them accountable, and that's what we've what you have seen. You have to be balanced in your approach. It's not black or white all the time. And so um, so the balance is for youthful crimes that are relatively minor, where we have shown and demonstrated that these types of interventions actually lead to a young, a young person not reoffending, we should continue those because ultimately we want our young people to be rehabilitated. But if they've committed a crime, they got a gun up in your face, guess what? I'm going for them. I'm going for them because we have to uh, teach our young people a lesson. I believe in tough love. Look, my parents thanked me when I was younger, <laughs> okay? <laughs> they loved me, though. They wanted the best for me. They loved me. They cared about me. But they also understood that punishment has to be a part of that rehabilitation. That has to be a part of learning your lesson. And I don't think there's anything wrong with punishment um, if our ultimate focus is to ensure that they don't commit the same offense again. So being lenient on young people doesn't serve them well in the future for the most part. And so that's why we have taken a strong but balanced approach to addressing juvenile crime. The... The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was the Maryland House Judiciary Committee uh, mm -hmm. hearing uh, approximately two weeks or so ago where there were all kinds of participants, obviously, but I, I would argue that probably the most visible participants were state's attorneys from across the state of Maryland. What did you learn from that? Well, look, I mean, I, like several of my colleagues across the state, have run into some challenges with the new uh, juvenile laws. And I think that there were good intentions um, when the legislature chose to take on this issue of juvenile justice. Certainly, I believe in positive and smart reforms to our juvenile system. However, some of the reforms, I think, went a little too far and, and really took, the, the in some ways, took the parents out of the equation. So let me just talk to you about one of the bills, which is the juvenile interrogation bill. Oftentimes, we would learn a lot of information, not only about what the juvenile's participation was in a crime, but, but sometimes it's the older adults uh, or other children who encourage that individual to participate in the crime. We get to learn about their identity so that we can hold everyone accountable. Um, with this new law, the children don't talk to us. And, in fact, even if their parents want them to talk to us, they can't. 
it is not the parent that gets to make the decision, but it's a lawyer that makes the decision on whether or not they can talk to us. And pretty much 9.9 times out of 10, they're not talking. And so we're unable to give them the services that they need. We're unable to really understand why they committed the offense, which is really a lot of what we want to know. That's how we get to learn what, you know, who's out here influencing our kids, what are the beasts in the neighborhood, why are these things happening. Uh, when you asked that question earlier, you know, I, I, I kind of chuckled because I'm thinking, gosh, I wish I could, I wish I, I could know, I wish I could ask these children who are facing charges, why did you do it? But this bill prevents that. And so we are asking for some sensible changes to the bill to at least allow for parents to make the decisions for their children, um, because ultimately our system is really supposed to rehabilitate kids. That's the whole point of the juvenile justice system. So taking accountability, being honest, being truthful, that's part of rehabilitation. So we hope that the legislature will agree with us and make some much-needed changes to uh, some of the legislation that has been passed. You are planning to make some some statements and, and do some other um, public events regarding uh, domestic violence. I, I certainly was touched by the, the guy who was uh, attempting to help and and protect uh, his friend who he says was abused by her husband. Uh, can you talk briefly about some of your some of your plans for addressing this going forward? Yeah, well, I, let me just say this. Uh, my office has been very proactive when it has come to uh, domestic violence. I lost a cousin to domestic violence, so I know the hurt, the pain, the despair that a family feels when you lose someone uh, because their husband or significant other took their life. It is just a devastating feeling. Um, so that's why I went to Annapolis and got uh, the strangulation uh, law passed that made strangulation a first-degree felony. Strangulation is the most lethal form of domestic violence. Um, I also then created a strangulation protocol for Prince George's County, a high-risk, high-lethality protocol for Prince George's County, which really addressed intimate partner violence. And we have really impacted intimate partner violence significantly. Those homicides have dropped over 40% under my leadership. We're now really focusing on the family itself. So it's not just a husband and wife or girlfriend and boyfriend situation that can turn into a tragedy. There are sibling, sibling issues, uh, parent-child issues. Um, so many other types of familial relationships where arguments have escalated into violence. And so now we need to figure out how to message around those types of relationships and how to address the violence that occur in those uh, households amongst individuals who we don't normally think of as having domestic issues. Um, and so uh, we have a purple bike ride, uh, which we do every year. Uh, we have that coming up on the 7th of October. Uh, we will also have a uh, town hall um, ad addressing this issue of family violence uh, later in the month. 
Um, and so all of that information we will certainly get to you in case any of your listeners are interested in uh, joining us. Uh, the Purple Bike Ride has been really a joy to initiate. Uh, that was initiated under my administration. We've had hundreds and hundreds of riders come and join us um, with really with the focus of letting our victims and survivors know that we have their back and they need to leave their situation and we can help them. And so um, I'm excited about that coming up on the 7th, and we are meeting at Fairwood Park early in the morning, about 8 a.m., so please join us um, on the 7th of October, which is a Saturday. I want to go, thank you for that, and I want to go back to back to the, the the issue of violence in our community mm-hmm. uh, something that is that has literally happened over the past four hours that the District of Columbia has now had its 201st homicide mm-hmm. it is the most homicides that the district has seen before October 1st in in a quarter century. And the our borders are porous, as you know. There, you know, there's no wall between Prince George's and the District of Columbia, or between the District of Columbia and uh, Arlington County and Fairfax County and all of that. Uh, again, when you when you think about some of these these issues that are are bleeding over not for, not necessarily just from DC but into Prince George's but even as as I'm sure you know there were two teenagers from Prince George's County who were arrested this week for a carjacking in Montgomery County uh, you are the you know chief prosecutor you're 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 not the police, but what changes would you like to make? Uh, because I guess right now, I, I think a lot of people are really concerned about moving from a, m- a more holistic way of dealing with violence and crime and just locking folks up. Uh, gun sales are up. You know, legal gun sales are up uh, across the country and and in the DMV, and and people are really people are really scared. Yeah, I can I can definitely understand that. Uh, what I can tell you is that uh, we uh, really have taken the lead on bringing um, the other stakeholders in the region to the table. What we noticed at one point that there were young people who were committing, let's say, carjackings here mm-hmm. and then driving over into uh, D.C. And then they would be arrested in D.C., but in D.C. they would be arrested for the auto theft. Um, and because that uh, was not a violent felony offense in D.C., they would uh, release the young people. And then it would take really... <laughs> a very difficult uh, kind of almost like an act of God to try to get that individual back to Prince George's County to face charges here. Okay. So we worked with the district of Columbia to come up with a process for them to hold the young people who are committing the offenses and then running over, over to the other, to the other side of the line, uh, holding them until we could get a writ sign to go and pick them up. So we have um, 
taken steps uh, to work with our partners uh, to hold young people accountable about um, almost 50% or so of the uh, arrests that are made for carjackings here in Prince George's County involving teens or young people uh, are residents of the District of Columbia. So we have to have a partnership with them. We initiated a partnership. They were um, on board, and so we now have that ability to hold young people accountable and get them um, arrested and then uh, brought back here for uh, their merit hearing. I, I do want to talk a, a little politics uh, be- before mm-hmm. the program ends. Uh, as you know, County Executive Angela also Brooks is running for U.S. Senate. She is term limited, so no matter what happens in 2024, she will not return uh, to office. Um, are you going to run for county executive? Well, I'm not prepared to make any announcements tonight. Uh, what I will say is that I look forward to continuing uh, to uh, represent the people of Prince George's County, uh, that I will look at any and all opportunities to serve the residents here. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to keep everything on the table at this point. Well, as you know, um, she is the second county executive to uh, to be, to first be a state's attorney. I mean, Jack Johnson before her. Um, so I, you, do you have something other than the uh, non-answer answer for me? <laughs> well, here's what I can say. Here's what I can say. I understand why individuals in the position of state's attorney um, would desire to run for executive. And, and a lot of it has to do with what we see in our positions as state's attorneys. We see where government has failed, where schools have failed, uh, where safety nets in our community have failed. And in many ways, um, you know, in your position as state's attorney, while you want to make changes and you can do programs here and there, you know, you're so focused on the mission of holding people accountable, which we have to do because that is our primary job, that it's difficult to be able to do all these other things or even have the resources to do them. So I can see uh, why an individual would want to, to figure out how, how can I be more involved in our schools? How can I create more opportunities for people to get mental health care? How can I create more job opportunities so that people aren't living on the margins and that they are not making bad decisions because they're stressed out? I get it. I get why being in this position um, gives you a a perspective uh, that is so important um, for someone who does have the resources, does have the ability to make the decisions that the exec makes. I could see why it's so important to have someone with the perspective of someone who has seen where everything has failed or has not worked for individuals. So, you know, it's something obviously that I'll consider and look at. I have to say I do love my job as state's attorney as well. I am grateful to be in this position. I do believe that at this moment in time, I'm exactly where God intended for me to be making the changes that I've been making, holding people accountable the way we have been, um, and and I'm proud of the job I've done. Um, but I obviously am going to look at ways to serve differently, 
And if that's something that I decide uh, makes sense for me in the future, I'll, I'll certainly let you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, oh, I, I appreciate that. I, I really appreciate mm-hmm. that. One more thing before you, you let me go, or we let you go, rather. Mm-hmm. Last week, we had the CEO of Wave Welcome on this program when we were talking about economic development in Prince George's County. And, mm-hmm. you know, earlier you know, this month you were uh, moderating a, a panel discussion. But the thing uh, re- regarding AI, artificial intelligence, and, and security, um, without trying to get too much into the weeds of of the, the, the technology and everything else, what role do you believe technology will play in safety and security uh, moving forward? Did you learn anything from that event? Oh, absolutely. And in fact... I actually went to the uh, owner of Wave Welcome, uh, Bernard Wright. Um, we, we, we met for lunch, and we were just really talking about the issues of crime, especially amongst our young people. And I said, you know what, I think technology could really aid us in not only solving crimes, but also making sure that we're holding the right people accountable. Is there any way that we could use technology, such as AI, uh, to make a difference? And he went to work. I have to give him credit. He went to work. and He's he a smart created, guy, no question. Yeah, he, he created this amazing app that attaches to existing uh, infrastructure like surveillance uh, cameras and things like that, uh, where if a gun is produced, uh, that that, that um, app or that technology, that AI will pick up on the fact that a gun uh, has been produced. And then the individual who is holding that weapon, the, the, the camera will focus in on that individual and then will send a message uh, to law enforcement that there is someone carrying an illegal weapon here uh, at this location. Here's who they are. I mean, it, 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 it looks like this is really the wave of the future. And I'm excited that we're going to get started on it here in Prince George's County. So I think it's a it's a great piece of technology, and I look forward to him uh, continuing to push it. I know that many of the um, uh, law enforcement um, uh, members of the law enforcement community who were there were very impressed. I know yeah. he sent several follow-up meetings. So I'm excited about uh, this, this new technology. Prince George's County State's Attorney Aisha Braveboy, thank you so much for talking to us. Be safe. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. That is The Daily Drum for Tuesday, September 26th. I'm Harold Fisher. Good night.